Did life have a single origin in the solar system? Or could there be life on Mars that came about totally independently from life here on Earth? And how would we know that? And that's one reason why I have a special love for Titan, because there's no way anything that lives in liquid methane is related to anybody you know. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Chris McKay, and he is a planetary geologist at the NASA Ames Research Center. His current research focus is on the evolution of the solar system and the origin of life. Welcome, Chris, to Gravity Assist. Glad to be here, Jim. Well, you've had a long and distinguished career in astrobiology. Where do you think you would look out into the solar system as being the best places to find life beyond Earth? I think the places that we're most likely to find life beyond the Earth soon are Mars and Enceladus. And the reason is, is those worlds have or had water, liquid water. We have clear evidence that there's organic material present, nutrients needed for life like nitrogen, and a source of energy that life can use. So all the big boxes are checked for those two places. So those are the places where I'm focusing my energies in terms of trying to do a mission to search for life. A couple of important points that we learned from Cassini about Enceladus is that in that water, in that ocean that's coming out into space, there are chemicals that are the sort of chemicals that many microorganisms use to get energy so-called redox couples, for example, hydrogen and CO2. Now, that doesn't sound like dinner to us human beings, but some <laughs> microorganisms just love to eat that stuff. So a source of biologically available energy is important. And also, life needs nitrogen. Fertilizer is basically nitrogen. And we see that in the plume, too. So the Cassini results have just been outstanding. They have really revealed the interior of Enceladus by analyzing the plume and shown us that that interior is habitable. It's very much like our own oceans. Uh, it's, it's very uh, tantalizing and, and there's samples coming out into space. It, it's almost too good to be true. I, I think the best thing to do next is fly through the plume. Now, based on what we find there, we may decide, well, we, we'd like to land or we'd even like to go diving into the ocean. But Clearly, the first step, fly through the plume, collect some material, and see what it is. Is the expectation that life would be microbial or something more complex? Well, it, the expectation is that it would be microbial for two reasons. One is, when we look at, on Earth at environments like what we expect on Enceladus, what we find there are microbial life. What are the kind of organisms that eat hydrogen and CO2 and make methane? Well, they're, they're microorganisms. Uh, the other reason is that we don't expect Enceladus to have oxygen in its ocean. And all large forms of life on Earth require oxygen. So we really ex what we're planning for and what we're developing instruments to, to look for is microbial life. Now, one of the things we've certainly learned from planetary science is be surprised. So who knows? Who knows? One of the reasons I like the field it's because we are often wrong and often surprised. What about Europa? Is that a good place to go looking for life? Or would you rather go to Enceladus? 
Well, I think we want to go to Europa. And what we need to do there, what we need to do at Europa is do what Cassini did at Enceladus, was show that there's organics, show that there's biologically available energy, and show that there are nutrients like nitrogen-containing compounds. We know that there's water, but we need to check those other boxes too. And I, I think, and I'm hopeful, that the Clipper mission, which is being built and will go on its way, will do just that. So I think Clipper will be for Europa, or I hope, what Cassini did for Enceladus and really open up our eyes to what the potential is for life and how to go about searching for it. So, you know, Titan is also another exciting moon of Saturn. And, uh, you know, what do you think about its opportunity to, uh, to be able to harbor life? Titan is in a category all by itself. All the other targets that we're working on for life are interesting because they have a liquid and that liquid is water or they had a liquid. Titan has a liquid. It's all over the surface. It's the only world that has beaches besides the Earth. But that liquid's not water. It's liquid methane. Now, that is interesting and challenging. It's challenging because we have no idea how life could use liquid methane as a substitute for water. It, it, we, we, can't, we can barely understand life with liquid water, but it's interesting because if we were to find life on Titan growing in liquid methane, that would tell us not only that life is widespread in the universe, but that it's really diverse. That is weird. There are weird forms of life. Now, with just Titan and Earth, we don't know who's the weird one. Is it them or us? But it tells us that the, the universe is full of life and it's full of diverse life. To me, that is the best possible outcome of our exploration. Right. That we go to Titan, we find life, and we find it is so different that it's clearly a second genesis. So, Chris, when you talk about a second genesis, what exactly do you really mean? And what would it look like? Well, we, we can say clearly what we mean by a second genesis. We mean life that had a separate origin than life on Earth. The challenge is, how would you recognize it? How would you know that it's different? That's really the hard part. And the answer that we've come up with so far is, if we look at life on Earth, we see certain patterns that are completely and 100% universal to all life on Earth. For example, all life on Earth uses only left-handed amino acids in the formation of its proteins. So all life uses proteins, and it only uses left-handed amino acids in those proteins. But proteins come in both right and left-handedness. Life has chosen on Earth has chosen the left-handedness. Suppose we go to Mars, we find molecules that we think are biological, it contains a lot of amino acids, and they're all right-handed. Now, I would argue that that is a persuasive evidence that that life form is completely different than life on Earth, that it, it drives on the other side of the road. And that, that is such a fundamental difference in biochemistry that it has to represent a separate origin and a separate evolutionary path. There, there may be more and it may be a combination of many things like this that tells us that, yeah, this has similar biomolecules in us, but it represents a completely different way of encoding that information. It really is a second genesis. And that's one reason why I have a special love for Titan, because there's no way anything that lives in liquid methane is related to anybody you know. Right. right? We have what I would call a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence that there may be life out there, but until we get it here, get it into our laboratories and can really examine it, 
uh, in many different ways with many different tools, uh, we're not necessarily going to be sure. We also are about ready to launch, uh, you know, the Perseverance rover uh, along with its uh, helicopter uh, ingenuity to Mars. Uh, they're going to be uh, creating samples, and we are going to bring those samples back. So we'll have an opportunity to, to, to look for life in the rock record. But, you know, there are other places on Mars that we ought to be going. There's things that we ought to be doing. What, what is the next best idea to be able to look for life on Mars? Well, one of the missions that I've been looking at and I'm interested in is landing in the polar regions and drilling down to the ice on Earth in the polar regions. And I've specialized in the polar regions. I like it cold. In the polar regions, we find that ice is very good at preserving the biomolecules that life is made out of. So there we might find not just evidence of life, not just fossils, but the actual frozen remains of, bio, of biomolecules. Think of the woolly mammoths in Siberia, frozen and preserved in ice. We want the microscopic ancient equivalent of those on Mars. And so going to the polar regions, I think, has a, is, is very attractive from a scientific point of view. It's very challenging from a technical point of view because you don't have a long, the summer's not very long, sunlight's not very bright. Well, you know, the ice on the, on the Mars polar cap, when we look at the spectrum, of reflected light, uh, it's it, it tells us it's CO2. But isn't that just a veneer? And don't we believe that there's an enormous amount of water trapped underneath that veneer of CO2? That's correct. That's correct. And if we look at the permafrost areas where there's isometric ground, for example, at the Phoenix site where Phoenix landed in 2007 at 68 degrees north, that is clearly isometric ground buried just a little bit below the surface, and that's water ice. And the interest, interesting thing is at that site, a few million years ago when Mars was tilted more in its orbit, that ice could have been, that isometric ground could have been muddy, like the Arctic on Earth becomes in the summertime. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't think of that, but you're right. Yeah, so there's some, um, we really need some sort of uh, ice interrogator mission uh, to, to go back there and, and take a look at it. Right, and, and drilling through ice. Drilling through ice cemented ground is very hard. Think of it as concrete. It's dirt and ice cemented together. It's very difficult to drill through. It's hard enough doing it on Earth. It's very challenging on Mars. That's the technology hurdle that we're focusing on is drilling into the ice. We call our mission Icebreaker for that reason. Well, indeed, as you say, uh, drilling here on Earth, uh, those uh, those locations on Earth for which uh, they're much like that which would be at Mars, gives you the opportunity to test your instruments. So what exotic locations have you gone to be able to do these tests and, and the field work uh, here on Earth? Well, that for the Phoenix site, for the Mars polar regions, the best analog, the site on Earth that my favorite spot for testing instruments and technologies like the drill are the high valleys of the dry valleys of Antarctica. These are very cold and very dry. When we think of Antarctica, most people think huge ice sheets and glaciers. Well, this, if you are standing in the upper valleys of the dry valleys, it looks barren. There's rocks and dirt. There's very little ice. We have to hike to find water to get drink wa drinking water. But that is a good Mars analog for the Mars polar regions. It is the coldest desert, dry desert location on Earth. And like on Mars, 
the surface is dry, but underneath the surface, there's an ice cemented ground. We dig down to that ice cemented ground, and we are doing the closest parallel on Earth to what we will hope to do on Mars when we go back to the Phoenix site, that area, and drill down and get into the ice instead of just reaching it, get into it. And what we're finding in these high valleys is that it's pretty tough for life there. And uh, we're, we're still working it, but it seems like that that's very close to the limit of what life can do in terms of cold and dry. And so it's, it's, it's really, it's at the edge of exploration. Is this a place where life can survive or not? A lot of extreme environments, we go there and yeah, it's extreme, but it's just full of life, right? <laughs> think, of, think of salt ponds, you know, extreme salinity purple with life, pink with life, you know, think of deep sea vents, very hot, but full of life. Here, we're finding extreme environment where life, all forms of life find it extreme. And so we're, it's a challenge and it, we, we don't yet have the answer. Is this telling us that there could be life in the permafrost of Mars or is it not? Well, one of the things about that, as you point out, is because the axis has uh, uh, changed over time, it's called the obliquity of the planet, uh, we're finding that in different locations uh, would have been more temperate. So indeed, uh, maybe that ice was, was, uh, was water. And then uh, here on Earth, where we go, where we find water, as you point out, you find life. So uh, that may mean that maybe life is trapped in that ice. So you have that opportunity even in the permafrost areas of Mars to find. Right. Well, you've been out on, on many field experiments, and as you say, you're planning to, planning to go uh, uh, back to uh, the dry valleys. Uh, would you be able to do that this year? I mean, the summer is coming up in the November timeframe. Is that the perfect time to go? That's right. We, we normally go to the Antarctic when it's summer down there and it's winter here. And how, how that's going to work this year is unclear. Everything is... Uh, right now in a state of flux, but if things in a sense return to normal in time, then we might be able to still do our field work. Uh, but uh, in the big scope of things, we've been working in the Antarctic for many decades now. And so we miss a year, we miss a year. What would you say is one of your more unusual experiences while you've been out in the field? Well, I would think that uh, the most unusual experiences we've had in the field, two of them come to mind. One is in the Antarctic, where we, under the leadership of Dale Anderson, our, our PI in one of the projects, we dive into ice-covered lakes. So mm -hmm. imagine, imagine a layer of ice that's uh, almost 10 feet thick, uh, floating on top of uh, a lake in a very cold, remote environment. We drill a hole, a, a meter in diameter hole, and we dive in and investigate the life in the bottom of that lake. It is really like entering into another world. Ah. This environment is so isolated, so remote, that there are no fish, there's no tadpoles, there's nothing swimming. If you didn't understand the microorganisms, you would think it was lifeless. But it's not. It's teeming with life. They're just microscopic. And the interesting thing we discovered is that in this lake in Antarctica, the microorganisms are building mounds that are about 10 or 20 centimeters high. And if you think of a microorganism that's a millionth of a millimeter building a mound... 10 centimeters high, that's enormous uh, scale difference between the things they built and the size of the organisms. It, it makes the pyramids look like an easy, an easy project. Uh, and these mounds, when the microorganisms die and the lake dries up, would be preserved 
the organics would be preserved, the structures would be preserved, and they represent potential evidence for what we might find for life on Mars or, or on the early Earth. So diving into that lake, the thing that I keep thinking is, this is like going back in time to the early Earth three and a half billion years ago when all that was here on Earth was microorganisms. And maybe at the same time, it's like going to Mars and finding what life was like on Mars back when it was only microorganisms. The second similar experience is going into a remote cave uh, underwater chamber in Mexico called the Cave of the Crystals, which was a huge room with giant crystals uh, the size of telephone poles that had formed over millions of years. Very hot, very humid. We needed protective suits just like we did in diving. So the cold extreme in Antarctica in this otherworldly environment of an ice-covered lake and the hot extreme in this crystal cave in Mexico. So then when you got into the cave, what do those crystals look like? They look like uh, chandeliers, gigantic pieces from chandeliers that have fallen down all throughout the cave. And they have grown up slowly over millions of years. And the, the main reason I was in the cave was to... Uh, further research in trying to investigate things without touching them. Now, if mm. you think back, this was this was ten years ago, before Curiosity and before uh, the the development of, of remote sensing instruments on rovers. We were just beginning to think: how could we analyze something without picking it up, without touching it? So I asked myself, is there some way to analyze them, look for microorganisms and organics in the crystal without chipping anything off the crystal, without, without just treating it like it was a work of art, like it was the Mona Lisa, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't tear it up to analyze it. And so we went in there with a Raman spectrometer to see if we could to characterize the mineralogy and look for organics and even biosignatures without sampling the crystal at all. And of course we could. It worked out very well. We were very pleased with the results. And this was part of the logic that led to the current focus on remote sensing instruments on rovers on Mars and so on. If we can sample things without touching them, it makes life on Mars a lot easier. And in this case, in the crystal, there was uh, a deeper motivation for wanting to do it. Well, many that do that uh, have expressed the fact that they believe there's more biomass below our feet than there is on the surface of the earth. Now, when you think about it, uh, you know, that means that life has got a tremendous hold here on earth. And uh, uh, if that happened at Mars, and even though the surface life may not exist anymore, we may find evidence of life below the surface. Do you think we'd find it in aquifers or, or in deep areas on Mars? That's a very important point. The subsurface may hold a larger biological signal than the surface on Earth and on Mars, for sure. And so we need to look. Aquifers, any, any environment, I, I think our knowledge of the subsurface of Mars is so limited, and our knowledge of how life spread on Mars is so limited, that we have to take the approach to look everywhere. Look wherever we can and everywhere we can. And if we find an aquifer, Obviously, that would be a hot place to, you know, very important place to go. Unfortunately, so far, we haven't found a lot. There's, there's some evidence of one underneath the polar regions, one of the polar caps. But searching for water is definitely uh, the way to proceed. 
And if we find subsurface water, if we find aquifers, if we find even ice that could have melted millions of years ago, or if we find high levels of hydrated minerals, these are all possible targets that, that we should investigate. Uh, I think we really should take the philosophy of leave no stone unturned, so to speak. If Mars <laughs> has a lot of stones, we should start unturning them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because you never know what you're going to find underneath the stone. Yeah, indeed. Well, okay, let's say you find it. You know, you spent a significant amount of your your research life, developing uh, instruments capability, thinking about deeply uh, what we should be looking for. Now you've come across it. What do you think will happen next? What would your reaction be? And what do you think about the public's reaction? Are we ready for that discovery? My own answer to that question, my personal answer, is we proceed very, very carefully. And the first thing we do is we remove from Mars all the spacecraft we've sent there because they're all harbor Earth contamination at some level. We remove it. They're, they're not, that contamination isn't growing. It hasn't altered Mars, but it's there with the potential to grow. These are dormant organisms that we know are inside all of our spacecraft. We remove them. Uh, and then we think, what do we do? Do we still send humans to the surface? Do we leave Mars alone? Do we actively try to support and enhance the life that's there? Now, being an advocate for life, I favor the latter. We study that life, and once we understand what it needs, we try to help it. We try to make it more like life on Earth, spreading all over, deeply rooted, extending over all parts of the planet. We try to encourage its own biosphere. Well, you know, uh, Carl Sagan always said that if we did find life on Mars, we need to leave it to the Martians. But, you know, as you point out, and, and we know the evolution of Mars has been from a blue planet now to a much more an arid planet. Uh, and, and if life exists, perhaps below the surface, maybe it's in the waning era of its existence. Right. And, and uh, uh, that's something uh, we would want to investigate, think about uh, to determine what its future is along with ours. Right. And, and my, my approach would be, we're from the government, we're here to help. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Chris, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about becoming the scientists they are today. And I call that a gravity assist. So, Chris, what was your gravity assist? That, that's a good question. And the answer for me is very clear. It was coming to NASA Ames as a graduate student for a summer internship. They haven't been able to get rid of me since. Uh, that's, where, that's where and when I decided that I was going to do astrobiology, although we didn't call it that then. That's where I got involved in the Antarctic work in the dry valleys. That's where I started working with Jim Pollock and Brian Toon and other really, uh, well, famous planetary scientists yeah. and trying to understand the link between planetary science and the origin of life. Uh, it started that that summer. That was an eight-week experience, and that was my gravity assist. That Delta V that I got from that gravity assist has been carrying me forward ever since. Well, that's fantastic. I, I really appreciate talking to you about some of these issues. You're really right at the forefront of all that research. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today on Gravity Assist. 
You bet. Join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.